Philippians. That's where we are, Philippians, looking at chapter 1. And uh, if, you're not, if you don't have a, a Bible and you haven't already, I would invite you to pick up one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. In that Bible, you can turn to page 980, I think, and that'll bring you to Philippians. But I uh, would invite you to open to that section now. Again, we're, we're in chapter 1. We just got started in this book, really. And we'll, um, I know it doesn't say this in the bulletin, but um, this is going to be part one. I'm breaking it up. So Paul's heart and prayer for the Philippians. Today, we're just going to look at Paul's heart for the Philippians. It is a unit, I believe. It goes together. I'll tie it all together in the next section. But um, when we look at it next Sunday. But today, we're just going to be looking at Paul's heart. Next week, we'll look at Paul's prayer or petition on behalf of the Philippians, okay? So Paul's heart for the Philippians and Paul's petition on behalf of a prayer on behalf of the Philippians. You good? You ready to get started? Good. Excellent. All right. The church in Philippi. The church in Philippi. Let me talk to you just a little bit about that as an introduction. Again, I've said some of this already, but it's good to just, I think, keep coming back at it so that we don't forget uh, what we're looking at here. And, and I would also, I want to encourage you again, if you haven't done this, will you read through the letter? Would you do that? Would you do that? read through the letter in its entirety and, and more than once, and do it uh, especially for next week as well, coming up next week. Maybe just make it a habit Saturday night or Sunday morning. Maybe not Sunday morning because it's probably a little chaotic. Maybe Saturday night, laying there in bed, read through the letter. Turn off the Netflix, read through the letter. Just read through the letter. Or do it together as a cup. Just read through the letter. Uh, I want to encourage you to do that. I can't tell you how much uh, it is my practice, at least when the letters are shorter, when I'm preaching through them, to regularly read through them, just to keep it right before my face constantly and in my mind and in my heart and continue to get the context, the flow, to understand the letter in its entirety. And with this one, you can do it fairly fast. It's short. So it's a little bit harder with the Gospels, uh, but we try to do that as well, read through them, you know. But this is a letter you could, it's a letter, man. It's a letter, you know. And so you can read through it pretty quick. So it's been really good for me, and I trust it will be good for you as well if you'll read through it. You'll start to just catch things. Anyway, please read through it, please. The church in Philippi, a, a church, beloved, that was about 10 years old, about like Summit. We're, we're right at nine, coming up on nine, so about the same age as us. They were about 10 years old at the time this letter was written. A church, beloved, that was born out of Paul's missionary efforts to make the gospel the singular passion of his life. And when I say gospel, right, do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't mean just this body of doctrine. Really, the gospel is a person. It's a person, and it's, it's the story of him. And that person is who? So when we talk about the gospel being the singular passion of his life, it is Christ. It is Christ and his life, Christ's life, and his death, and Christ's resurrection, and Christ's glorification, and Christ's ascension and return, and so on and so forth. It is Christ, the gospel. That was a singular passion of his life. So in his missionary efforts to make the gospel the singular passion of his life known to all, right, so that others might also so that others might also worship and adore and be captivated by and live for the glorious and one and only Lord of lords. That's, what, that's how the church began. 
It was because of Paul's singular passion and because of that, his missionary efforts to make him known. The church in Philippi, a church that from its inception was united with Paul in a great love for and devotion to Jesus Christ and partnered with Paul in whatever way they could to advance the gospel, to advance Christ, to help spread the amazing story of him, of him. Paul wrote this letter to the church while under house arrest in Rome, in prison for nothing more than proclaiming the saving message of Christ, the gospel. Having learned of Paul's imprisonment, the church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus on their behalf to care for Paul's needs while imprisoned. The church in Philippi was a church, beloved, that that brought Paul great joy, which is expressed again and again in this letter. It was a church that was as he was, enamored with Christ. And because of their deep devotion to Christ, they were avid supporters of the apostle of Christ. Paul. Avid supporters of him as he relentlessly served the great cause of Jesus Christ. However, however, all was not well with this Christ-loving, Christ-advancing, and Christ-glorifying church. Beloved, as I have said before, the enemy, the devil, is always looking to undermine or diminish a church's singular passion for Christ and related to that, their Christ-given mission to make devoted followers, faithful servants, and raving fans of the Lord Jesus Christ. In reading this letter, we can conclude that seeds of disunity existed in the church in Philippi. With that introduction, we will pick up where we left off last time, which is verse 7 of chapter 1. Verse 7 of chapter 1. Paul, after informing the church Right at the beginning of the letter, this is what he opens with, after the greeting. This is the, the beginning of the body letter, right at the beginning of the body letter, after he, he informs them that, listen, he thanks God every time he thinks of them. That's, that's something, right? And that all of his prayers for them are made with joy. He follows that up now 
He's not done. He follows that up now by saying this in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. So, beloved, we know, right? We know, I hope, that when he says, I hold you in my heart, that when he says the heart, it's not the organ that we call the heart that he is referring to, but rather it speaks of the person's innermost being, their inner self. And used here and everywhere in the scriptures when it's used by Paul, it includes the mind, uh, the feelings, the desires. It's, it's all of that when it speaks of the, the heart. One writer says it is the center, the heart, is the center and source of the whole inner life with its thinking, feeling, and volition. Another Bible translation translates it, I hold you in my heart, as this like this, for you have a special place in my heart. You have a special place in my innermost being, in my mind, in my feelings, in my thoughts. And the word feel here, it is right for me to feel this way about you. It's a good translation of the underlying Greek word, but it, it, can, re, it can refer to both thoughts and attitudes and feelings. And in fact, I would just include all of those in that word. So, it is this sense that Paul is saying, it is right that I have this positive attitude toward and warm affection for all of you, for all of you. I have good thoughts and a warm heart toward you all, since you have or occupy a special place in my heart. Why? Why why does this church occupy a special place in Paul's heart? And, and I would, I was talking to Thomas about this. I, I've seen some guys kind of look at this and say, well, this is how Paul felt about every church. No, I don't think so. I think you should read, for instance, read Galatians. He cared about the Galatians. He loved the Galatians, but he was downright frustrated with the Galatians for some of the things that they were doing and turning away from Christ or potentially turning away from Christ. He loved them, but he was frustrated. Consider the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth brought him an incredible amount of pain, which he speaks of in his letters to him. He loves them, but I don't think the wording certainly would be the same. Every time I think of you, I'm just thanking God, and all my prayers are filled with joy. No, indeed, some of his prayers for the church in Corinth were for sure filled with pain, sorrow, as he expresses in his letter. So what is it about this church in Philippi that causes him to say these things and then to justify and, and say before them, and it is right, it is, it is right that I feel this way about you. I, I, you hold a very special place in my heart. Well, look back at the text, because the answer is there. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, or since I hold you in my heart, for you 
are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Of the gospel. Beloved, what? And I've already given you the answer, but now I want you to tell it to me so I know that you were listening. What was the singular passion of Paul's life? Right. It was the gospel. Or, yes, or as I said, the person of Jesus Christ. And this church in Philippi, because of God's saving and transforming grace, was of the same mind. United with Paul in his love for the gospel, for Christ. And so they were gladly standing with and supporting Paul, both in his imprisonment, right? He wasn't locked up for being a, a thief, but in prison for Christ. So they gladly stood and supported Paul both in his imprisonment for preaching the gospel and in his ongoing defense and confirmation of the gospel. The gospel. Now, uh, quickly, maybe not quickly, let me cover this, this thing here, defense and confirmation, that phrase, defense and confirmation of the gospel. You might already have a good idea of what is being talked about there, but then you read commentators and you find out all kinds of things. You're like, well, I didn't know that. Okay, so let me talk to you about it a little bit. What is this defense and confirmation of the gospel that they have become partakers with in God's grace and in working with Paul and supporting him in that cause? Well, commentators point out that the words Paul used, defense and confirmation, were legal terms. They were legal terms that could be, that could be solely referring to the circumstances related to Paul's imprisonment. That is, the upcoming judicial hearings or, as one person says, his imminent appearance in court before the Roman authorities, where he would have to give a defense and validation, if you will, of the gospel. In other words, he'd have to stand before the pagan authorities in Rome and try to defend his cause and validate why he was saying, there is only one Lord and it's not Caesar. And all these other gods are no gods at all. There is one God, his name is Jesus Christ. And so he'd have, to give a, he'd have to give a defense and his proofs, if you will, for that cause. So when Paul says defense and confirmation of the gospel, it certainly includes that, probably, for sure, I think so. It may be limited to that, but it may not be. Paul's, in using those terms, he may not be restricting them purely to their legal sense in relation to the judge or the, you know, the trial that he's going to face. So one writer points out, he says this, he, he broadens it a little bit, and I'm agreeing with these, this broadening of the terms, okay? He says, defense, defense, that term being used, probably also includes all of Paul's efforts, all of them, 
at disarming prejudice and overcoming objections to the preaching of the message. He's giving a defense of the gospel, not just before the judge, but to all who he's preaching the gospel to and looking to advance the cause of Christ and make him known. Also, with the word confirmation, the meaning does not seem limited to Paul's legal matters, this commentator says. Rather, it appears to point to that aspect of Paul's apostolic work in which he sought to corroborate the truth of the gospel by proof, testimony, and forthright declaration. He goes on to say, whether Paul is in prison and arraigned before his judges or engaged in some other defense and confirmation of the gospel, the Philippians were partakers with him. All right? So we broadened it outside of just before the judges to Paul's entire ministry. I want to go one step further. I think, I think it's even broader than that when he's using that term. One writer says, concerning the phrase, the defense and confirmation of the gospel, he says this, one biblical scholar, in light of how the rest of the letter unfolds, Paul seems here also to be embracing them for their long-term association with him in the gospel. So again, not just this event that has occurred and what he's going to face because he's in prison, but, but all of his ministry, his gospel ministry, that is by their helping him to share the gospel in other settings to be sure, but also by their own activity in Philippi. Their own activity in Philippi, especially in the face of similar hostility to his, which they too then would have to defend and confirm the gospel. It goes on to say the hostility, after all, comes from the empire itself. That is the Roman Empire. And Philippi is a province or a colony of the Roman Empire, all right? They were Roman citizens there. I didn't get into all that when we did the introduction, but basically they would, they would you know, capture a, a location, a place, and then they would uh, unload their Roman soldiers there and, and fill it with Roman citizens, and it became basically, it's, it's a, a, a mini-Rome, if you will, a mini-Rome. And so they, they used Rome law, Roman law, they were indeed Roman citizens, and so they practiced the Roman way, which was pagan through and through. And they bowed the knee to Caesar. And so he says, the hostility, after all, comes from the empire itself, of which they are both citizens, both of whom are now in trouble because they hold allegiance to a citizenship in which Lord Christ holds sway even especially over Caesar himself. In other words, here's Paul in Rome. Why is he, in, why is he imprisoned? And who's he imprisoned by? The Roman authorities. And why is he imprisoned? Because he speaks against the pagan way. He proclaims there is only one Lord, and his name is Christ, not Caesar. And here in Philippi, because they love the Lord Jesus Christ too, they also are proclaiming the very same thing. And so they also are having to defend and confirm the gospel against the hostiles who look to suppress it and suppress those who preach Jesus. So let me summarize. Is that okay? Because I got to catch my breath too. I know you sure do have to catch yours, right? Just trying to catch up, all right? So here's a summary of these statements. In their, in their, the Philippians, in their unrelenting devotion to the gospel, and therefore to Paul as well, for 
for he is the one who made the gospel known to them and was leading the way in making the gospel known to the world. In that unrelenting devotion to the gospel, Paul sees in the Philippian church that the saving, transforming, energizing, heart-changing, life-altering grace of God that is at work in Paul is also at work in them. Evident in their continual support of him and his missionary endeavors and in their own work to defend and confirm the gospel where they reside there in the city of Philippi. Wow, okay. You with you with me? That's how I understand that phrasing and what Paul says when he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now listen, listen, listen. Uh, It was no small thing for them to support him by sending Epaphroditus and offering up gifts and help and, and basically aligning themselves with this prisoner. It's no small thing, right? It is, it is, or was, I should say, an evidence of, of, of the working of God's grace in their lives that would cause them to hold highest in their lives the gospel and the advance of the gospel and the progress of Jesus that he might be made known. It is that because this is no small thing. This is not like, hey, you know, let's go down to the prison and help those prisoners out. But, but we, you know, we don't have, I mean, we're not affirming what they did right? We're just looking to minister to them, all right? Who's going to get upset about that? But beloved, by them doing this, it was, in a very real sense, affirming what he did, which is the preaching of the gospel. They're affirming it, which was, in a sense, treason against the Roman Empire. You hear me? They're aligning themselves with this Paul by helping them. One writer says, Paul's circumstances did not hinder their relationship, but being a prisoner could have presented an obstacle to their wholehearted support. Would you do me a favor? Would you turn uh, to the left in your Bibles to Acts? Acts 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. That's from left to right, yeah. Acts 16, but left from Philippians. All right. Do you remember? So this is, I had asked you guys, hey, make sure you read this too. It's so good. But this is the occasion here, recorded here in Acts, where Paul was there arriving in Philippi, and he's preaching the gospel. It's then and there when the church was born. And it wasn't born without controversy or hostility, right? There was pushback hard against Paul. In fact, he ended up in prison, (laughs) right? So 10 years ago, he's in prison. 10 years later, it's a little different. He's imprisoned. He's under confinement, house arrest. So a little different, but he still can't go anywhere. He might even be shackled with chains. It's possible, even under house arrest. 
okay? But here's what I just want to show you, Acts 16, 19. Is that what I want to show you? I believe so. Here we go. But when her owners saw that, okay, I need to back up. Let me go up to 16. They're in Philippi, Paul and Silas, as we're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Huh? You know, like down on Holt, the fortune-telling places? We'll read your palms. This, there's nothing new under the sun, guys. Don't ever, don't ever go into one of those places, Christian. You don't belong there. It's not fun. It's demonic. Who had a spirit divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, I'm not, again, I don't know if that's how it sounded, but it must have been annoying to one degree or another. On top of that, it's coming from a demonic source, right? While it's true, that's not the person you want to be the source of such news. And this she kept doing for many days. So I think it's just, are you kidding? Just probably the same thing over and over again. Paul having become, and maybe there was sorrow, I don't know. But Paul having, we know this, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Hey, check it out. Paul gets annoyed, right? But I'm going to tell you, he's annoyed, he's annoyed not for the, you know, like, he's just because he's hungry and, or he can't get through the fast food line fast enough. You know what I mean? Like, he's annoyed because this is touching that thing that is most important to him which is Christ. She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, because it's always about the money, folks, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, you know, the guys in charge, they said, these men are Jews! And they are disturbing our city. Doing what? Disturbing your city? They're preaching the gospel. And he just cast a demon out of that woman. And listen to what they say. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. See, that's, this, is a, this is a Roman town, all right? Through and through. So the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. The crowds just started attacking them. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, oh, and then finally, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right? So we know the story you know, is, it has a good ending too because the jailer ends up getting saved and so on and so forth. And you can read the story. I only read that to you just to show you that there's real opposition there, okay, against the preaching of the gospel, against Christ. Real opposition there. They are Roman citizens. They follow the ways of Rome. The gospel says there is only one God, one Christ. All of your pagan gods are nothing, okay, all right? Caesar wants to be worshipped. No, we will obey Caesar, but we cannot worship him because there is only one who is worthy of worship, and he is Christ. Yeah, you see? And now, Paul's got himself locked up in Rome for Christ. And the church in Philippi, who's making Christ known there, 
is aligning themselves, saying, we're going to put our support behind him, which really is behind his message or behind the one he is proclaiming. And so it was risky because it could have brought even more persecution to them there in Philippi. It was a risky decision. One writer says, God in his grace had prompted the Philippians, because you know this is an act of grace, of God's transforming grace that causes you to be willing to make sacrifices for the cause of Christ. To endure suffering, if necessary, for Christ. It's God's grace that does that. Who else in their right mind would do such things? but it's a person who is in Christ and being changed and transformed by the grace of God who would put themselves at risk for the cause of Christ, if necessary. Paul was the man, the man primarily advancing Christ to the Gentiles. That's how they heard about the gospel in the first place. For their love for Christ they went, even if it would potentially bring even more trouble to them. He says, God in his grace has prompted the Philippians to alleviate Paul in his imprisonment so that they were not shamed or intimidated by the bonds of their apostolic founder. Yeah, he's locked up, but he's locked up for the sake of Christ. And we are not ashamed to associate with him, nor are we afraid. We will help him. We will send one of our own. We will get a gift together that will sustain him. And, of course, we will pray for him that he might be released and continue to advance Christ. You know, I think about this, too. This is 10 years later, right? So they haven't given up. At the very beginning, even as you read the book of Acts, they, they are committed now. They, God has changed them and changing them. They are committed to Christ, but it wasn't short-lived. Is that terrible illustration I tried to use about the frying pan last time or whatever, and I couldn't figure it out. And I, I can't even remember now, so it doesn't matter. You know, it comes and goes. It wasn't, it wasn't transient. It wasn't short-lived. This is 10 years later. They're still committed. They're still devoted to Christ and his cause, and because of that, to Paul who's advancing Christ. And their commitment, as one person puts it, is not conditional upon favorable circumstances. You know, they're, they're not going because it might get them something. They're going because they love Christ and consequently love the apostle of Christ, the one authorized to represent him and to, and to make him known to the Gentiles, authorized by Christ. And it may, not only was it a sacrifice financially, a sacrifice of Epaphroditus, a sacrifice to Epaphroditus, as we find out later, he almost died, but a sacrifice to them as a whole, as a church, who's in this Roman colony and has already faced opposition in the beginning and certainly was still facing opposition. This would only make matters worse. You've got your guys on trial. He's about to be tried before the Roman authorities. It would, it, would, it would make most sense, if you were trying to avoid problems, to just keep it on the down low. Maybe just send him something secretly. Don't send a guy over there. and don't Because the guy's going to walk in. They're going to know where he's from. The soldiers are going to look at him. They're going to know he's from Philippi. 
How dare you support this guy? Let's put the clamps down on them. Do you understand what I'm saying? It wasn't a small thing. Now we come back to the passage. Philippians 1, 7 through 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he says, kind of really coming back to his feelings about them, his attitude toward them, his heart for them. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's, he's reinforcing the point about his feelings for the readers. And he does so by introducing an oath <laughs> in which he calls God to witness, as one writer says, that he longs for the Philippians with nothing less than the love of Jesus Christ himself. In effect, he's saying, God himself knows how I feel about you. You can't look into my heart, but I testify before God himself. He knows. He sees my heart. And he knows how I'm thinking about you and how I feel about you. He's yearning for them. He, another translation is he's longing for them. There are, there are several words. The word expresses desire, okay? Desire. And there are several words that are used in the New Testament to express desire. But this term is different from the other ones in that it always is used to describe a desire that is praiseworthy because there can be bad desires as well, like lust. Different word used for that. But this one is used for some, a desire that is praiseworthy. And as we, read the letter, he, as we read the letter, and we look at Paul's use of the word throughout other letters, but especially in the letter itself, where he uses it again in 225, actually 226, and he talks about Epaphroditus' longing for them all, longing for them all. And it's, it's in the reference, it's in context of wanting to go back and be with them, to, to be with them, to see them again, to fellowship with them again, right? He's been sent out, he's with Paul, but he's, he longs to be with them again, to have fellowship with them again. Then that's the idea, I would think that's the idea here too. I, I yearn. I yearn to be in your company again. Uh, that's what Paul is saying. God is my witness. God himself knows. I yearn, I long to be with you in your company, not just writing to you, but there with you again. This congregation means so much to him, and it's described, as one writer puts it, as nothing less than Christ's love expressing itself through Paul with the affection of Christ. I love you. It's Christ's love through me toward you. I long to see you again. So here are my final, here are my final thoughts. This is Paul's heart expressed here, right, for the Philippians. And we've talked about it's important that we know what's going on and what's unique about this church or special, or the circumstances surrounding this church and Paul's connection with it. But here are just a few of my final thoughts. Here's what I want to say to you. I want you to think about this as we look at him expressing himself here. And it is this. It is this. This isn't ultimately about Paul or the church in Philippi. In, in this sense, okay? In other words, it isn't about 
how the Philippian church is treating Paul, how well they're treating him, and he really likes to be treated well and taken care of. It's not about that. It's also not about the church in Philippi, how well they're doing, or even that these are really cool people that he likes to hang around. You know, he just misses them, you know? We spend a lot of good time. They're really nice, and, and they'll provide for all my needs. I'm going to tell you, it's not a, I don't believe it's about that at all. You, that needs to be removed from the equation. In other words, this back and forth, this relationship, it's not about either side. It's not about the Philippians, and it's not about Paul. It is about Christ. So let me say it this way. I don't believe Paul's feelings for this church, and they are deep and special. I don't believe these feelings for this church are the result of their love and support of him per se, but rather, but rather, their love of Christ, their devotion to Christ, which has brought them and Paul together in this enduring partnership. That's what's moving Paul. In other words, Paul is moved in his heart by the common love that they have for the gospel, for Christ, as seen in all their efforts, and they were many, to advance the gospel. Let me say it another way. He had great affection for them and was rejoicing over them. Why? I mean, normally when we think about things like this, we think just first and foremost because they did something for me. I don't think that is it. I'm going to show you in a second. I don't think that's it. Why? It was because of their focus on and passion for Christ and Christ's will for them in the world. And so their sacrificial long-term gospel partnership, driven by this passion for Christ, is the reason for this apostle of Christ to treasure them, to long for them, to be in their, in their company once again, these Christ lovers. To hold them. It is the reason he holds them close in his heart. They, with him, they, with him, are loving and advancing the one that Paul loves most. That's it. That's it. Can I illustrate this? I'll try. How do you feel about uh, someone who devotes themselves uh, to the care of your child? Or, you don't have a child, someone else you love dearly, who pours, like, who, has this, who devotes themselves to this person you love, who pours into them, who is fixed on them and their progress and taking care of them. How do you feel about them? Huh? How do you feel about them? Hello, come on. Great, grateful, right? Now, Nick, if you don't, I'm talking about someone you love. If you don't love that person and they come along and take care of them, you care not, right? Like, whatever, whatever. I don't even care about them. Go ahead. Waste your time. I don't care. Or if you don't care that much, then it doesn't really move you. It doesn't, it doesn't occupy a special place in your heart. But for this one you love most, and another one comes along and 
in real ways demonstrates their love for them as well, your heart is attached to them, not because of what their love for you, but for their love for the one you love most. Yeah. Remember what I said for Paul. It's all about Christ. It is the singular passion of his life. So for him, yes, he rejoices over the Philippians. He thanks God in every remembrance of them. Why? Because of their love for and devotion to Christ that is showing up in them coming alongside Paul who shares with them this same love and devotion. And they're coming alongside Paul not to make Paul's life better, per se. Not even, that's not the focus, but to help Paul advance the one they both love. And so he, he's tied to them. I can see, this is why he says, I yearn to be with you. Why? Because you guys have the greatest food. The greatest food, man. You, some of the ladies there in the church, they know how to make a meal. You guys have awesome potlucks. Or one of you have a really nice bed, and I am so looking forward to laying in that nice bed after being in prison in this place here in Rome. No, no, beloved. I don't believe so, not for a second. Surely it's not there. But I don't think that's Paul's thought. Read the letter. Read the letter. No. I want to be with other Christ lovers. I want to be with you. I want to look you in the face. I want to hear of Christ come out of your mouth as it comes out of my mouth. It's contagious. It's, it's needful. That's what united them together. And here's the other part, I would say. Paul, I think, Paul is modeling for them here in these verses the attitude the heart that they, the Philippians, should have toward one another there in that church. One commentator says, Paul asserts that it is right, it is right for him to feel as he does. He goes on to say, his is the right way to think and feel toward others other gospel lovers, in contrast to the negative attitude of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition that we will see Paul address. In other words, there's seeds of disunity in the church. Why? There's conflict in the church. Why? You should, like me, be rejoicing over one another, thanking God for one another and the work that God is doing there in that body. You should be offering up petitions, prayers to God with joy on the other's behalf because you are supporters and lovers of Christ. That's what matters. But like with all churches, you know, something else becomes important. Instead of Christ's desires, my desires. Instead of Christ's interest, my interests. Well, beloved, we cannot unite around my interests because they are going to stand against someone else's interests. But what we can surely unite around and get excited about and go forward in is the interest of Christ because he's made them clear and it's just his. You see? I think even right at the outset, he is saying this is what matters. 
Stop being distracted by those things that matter not. I'm here in a prison rejoicing over you and giving thanks. Why? Because of your love for Christ. Because that is what matters. Why? Because of your desire to see Him promoted and advanced. Because that is what matters. And you are allowing seeds of disunity to begin to grow. What? And I'll show you now. It's quick. I know it's over time, but whatever, guys. No, there's no picnic, so I get the next hour and a half, two hours. I know the kids, right? Here it is. Let me show you. Let me show you. And then I, I hope it will spur you on to read the letter in its entirety. And you will see. You will see what I'm talking about here in 112. I want you to know, brothers... I'm just going to read some passage. That what has happened to me, as he goes on, has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to him is he's in prison or imprisoned. He goes on to say, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, because I'm telling them. I'm making sure they know. And most of the brothers, Christian brothers, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and robbery, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. We'll get there, okay? But just see those words? Something else. There's another motive. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. It's all about Christ. Paul is over the top, fired up about this church in Philippi. Why? Because they have made it all about Christ. Now, there's some problems brewing. He's going to address those, because the last thing he wants to to see happen is them go off course for it to become something other than all about Christ and making him known and advancing him. Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest. These others that he's talking about, not those of Jesus Christ. This Timothy will seek the interest of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with the father, he has served with me, not me, but served with me in what, beloved? In the gospel. Why? Because his interests are the interest of Jesus Christ. And that is what fires Paul up. That is what he says makes this man proven a proven worth. It was all about Christ. Finally, Philippians 2.25, and well, there he talks about sending Epaphroditus back to them. He's been such a help to Paul. Epaphroditus came from the church in Philippi. And then he says in verse 29, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Why? For he nearly died. Why? Bailing me out? No. For the work of Christ. 
You'll, over and over again, Paul keeps tying everything back to that because for Paul, it's all about Christ, beloved, for you. What is it all about? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this letter. I thank you for the work that you have done and are doing here in this little body called Summit. Keep working, Father. Keep working for your glory and for the advancement of our Lord and Savior. In his name I pray, amen.